So as you know, we just uh, finished our time together in the book of Ruth. That was fun. That was Old Testament. It was nice. Um, we are going to be jumping into another book um, come se- the first week in September, September 1st. But we're going to spend uh, four weeks in eight verses together. Um, we're going to spend some time looking at the, the, the doctrine of the church. Who are we? What are we doing here? Um, we're calling these four weeks together. Uh, this is a quote from Jesus when he says, I will build my church. And uh, we're going to outline the four weeks like this. If you're a planner, if you like to know where we're going, these are the four weeks. Uh, the first this week, this morning, is we're going to look at the founder of the church in verses 13 to 18. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the foundation of the church, verses 16 to 19, and sorry, this is out of Matthew chapter 16. I don't know if I told you that. You're like somewhere in the Bible. We're in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20 is kind of like what's framing all of this. So the, the first week is the founder of the church, verse 13 to 18. Next week is the foundation of the church, verses 16 through 19. Uh, the next week, we're actually going to have Tim Chaddock with us from Reality London, teaching on like the function of the church, how we function as a church. And then uh, the final week together will be the final completion of the church in verses 18 through 20. So we're going to like really milk these verses for all they're worth. Um, People have said that these eight verses are the climax of the teaching ministry of Jesus. This is the first time we even see the word church in the New Testament. And so we see, we see things about the founder, the foundation, the function, the completion, all here in these verses. Uh, it's just a really good time for us to remember who we are and what matters, what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years. And that reality carp is like a tiny little piece of that. And we want to see ourselves in what Jesus is doing. So we'll begin by reading that whole text together. Matthew 16, we'll read verses 13 through 20, and then we will pray and get into the word of God together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's the word of God. Let's pray again together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you this morning that we are not relying on flesh and blood. We do not put our hope in a preacher or in in any group of people. We put our hope in you, King Jesus, and your word that's been revealed to us from heaven. Jesus, this morning, we need divine revelation. As the Father revealed truth to Peter, we need you to speak to us, your people, this morning, Jesus. Thank you that you are a faithful, faithful God, and you have begun to build your church, and you are building your church, and you will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Holy Spirit, would you be the teacher of all things? Would you expose Christ and the truth you have given us in your word? Um, Would you encourage us, your people? Would you encourage us that you are at work in our lives individually and and even more importantly, corporately as your people, as your bride? Would we see ourselves as a member of something bigger of the church? Would you just deepen our confidence and trust in you, Jesus, this morning? And it's in Jesus' name we said together, amen, amen. So uh, we're going to work through this nice and slow, but I want us to begin by just thinking together on those five words of Jesus, I will build my church. Who is the I here? It's Jesus. Jesus is speaking. And hear me, this is the most essential thing about the church. Jesus is the head of the church. 
What is the most important thing about our identity as a church? It's that Jesus is the head of the church. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, speaking of Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It is all about Jesus. Um, you know, it's been a, a year where our, sabbat- our pastor's been on sabbatical, and the easy questions make sense. Hey, who's running this thing? Do you know what the answer is? Jesus. Yeah, but who's, you know, setting the vision of the church? Jesus. Yeah, okay, but like the buck stops where? It stops with Jesus. Okay, okay, okay. But who has the authority in the church? Jesus. This is a truth so believed in by our dear Pastor Britt. He's speaking it, spoken it, speaking it over the years. Uh, this is Jesus' church. You are Jesus' church, and he's a senior pastor. And now, now Jesus gives us his word, who, you know, we, we have biblically appointed and qualified elders. But do you know what the job of an elder is? It's just to get people looking to Jesus. Do you know where the authority of pastors come from? comes as they submit to the word of God under Jesus. This church is run literally, figuratively, practically by Jesus, which means this, because Jesus is the head of the church, uh, the most serious thing that can happen to any church or any person in the church is to be cut off from the head, right? Like you can survive losing a finger, or a limb, but you cannot survive without your head. The church cannot survive without our head. Uh, Paul develops this idea later in Colossians chapter 2, and he's speaking to the church, and he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, that's us, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Where does the growth come from in a church? It comes from God. It comes from Jesus. Our job is to hold fast to the head, to the head. You know, we talk a lot about church unity. Unity is, well, unity will never be accomplished if unity is our goal. Unity will be accomplished when Jesus is our goal. When we have one vision on one person united around Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. The second word he says is will. I will build my church. Did you know Jesus' church will be built? It's not up in the air. It's not in question. He's not stressed out like, how are they gonna do? Did you know the church has survived 2,000 years of human chaos and false teaching and craziness, and yet here we are worshiping Jesus? And when we kind of begin to freak out about What's going to happen? Do you know who we're like? You remember when, when uh, the, the disciples were in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and Jesus, I don't, you know, he's like, let me just sneak up on them in the middle of the night. And so he's walking on water and they're like, is this a ghost? And then Jesus is like, no, it's me. It's Jesus. And Peter's like, it's really you. Call me out. And so Peter jumps out of the boat and starts walking on the water towards Jesus. And then what happens? He began to look at the wind and the waves. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. You see, when we take our eyes off of Jesus and look at wind and waves, we begin to sink. Hear me, Jesus was not stressed out on the water. He spoke to the wind and the waves and they were calm. Jesus will build his church. This is not in question. Do you want to hear this is crazy? This may offend you. It's not even dependent upon us. He will build his church. I heard a pastor this week um, say this. God is not dependent upon us for anything. We are dependent upon him for everything. The builder of the church is not dependent upon the church. Uh, One of our favorite Bible verses in the Bible, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. But we, did you know that's only half of the verse? Have you, did you know there's another half to the verse? Look what the other half says. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We think for God to be exalted, I need to get busy. I need to get to work. Do you know what he says? Be still. Sit yourself down. Calm your heart and your mind. This thing is not in question. I will be exalted. And the first thing that we need to do is to be still and know that. To know that Jesus is building his church. To, like Mary, abide at his feet. To worship him to be with him, to trust him. And then from that place, fruit organically comes. We will be uh, built up as we spend time with Jesus. The saddest thing is to be worried about the church and having our eyes off of God and our hands busy like Martha. He says, be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted. I will build my church. And then think of that third word, I will build Church, similar idea, but hear Jesus say this to you this morning. You don't build my church. I build my church. There is no command in the New Testament for humans to build the church. We are not the builders. We are built. We're the building. We are not the architect. We are the materials. We are not the stone layer. We are the stones. Church, sometimes we think a little too highly of ourselves. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, I really need them to help me build my church, to help me build my kingdom. This happened to David. He loved the Lord and he was successful. And he was like, do you know what? I'm going to build God a house. Do you know what God needs? He needs me to build him a house. And so he goes to a prophet. The prophet's like, oh, for sure, build him a house. And then that night, God told the prophet, nope, go to David and tell him, you will not build my house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish your name and your kingdom. You are a human being. And then it says, David overwhelmed sat before the Lord and just said, who am I that you would include me in your kingdom, in your house? This verse in Psalm 127.1, may we believe this church unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then then notice this verse in Luke 12. We think so often we bring the kingdom. You know, we're going to bring the kingdom to Carpinteria. We're going to bring the kingdom to the coastlands. Look how the kingdom comes. Jesus said in Luke 12, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We receive the kingdom of God. If you look in Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. The kingdom building is the king's work. We are built by the king. Now, you know, you may get your feelings hurt. Are you saying, I'm not important? I don't have a place here. I'm not supposed to do anything. No, you have a place. You're in the building. With Christ as the head, you are a member of the body. But you are to play your part as a member of the church, never as a builder of the church. And you would say, well, doesn't that make me kind of insignificant? And the answer is, well, kind of yes and kind of no. Paul wrote to a divided, messed up church called uh, the, the church in Corinth. And, and they were arguing over which leader they wanted to follow, who was the better teacher. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Who then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We certainly have been assigned our place. But even when we're faithfully serving the Lord in our place, do you know what we say? I'm nothing. God is everything. When we begin to fight over our place and our preeminence and our name and our position and our comfort, we're just like the Corinthian church. And Paul is saying, you guys are missing it. It is about God who brings the growth. And then I will build my church. This is Jesus's church. Reality Carp is not your church. It is no person's church. It is Jesus' church. This church does not belong to any minister, pastor, group of people, group of elders, group of servants. 
belongs to Jesus. We are his, and we're precious to him. Jesus calls us his bride. The Bible says we are so precious because we were purchased with the blood of Jesus. Paul says this in Acts 20, verse 28, speaking to the pastors and elders at the church in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You know, if something's expensive, if it's costly, generally we care for it. Generally we protect it and watch over it. We don't just leave it lying around. The church was purchased with the blood of Jesus. This church is precious to Jesus. The church is precious to Jesus. And truly, we are simply a part of the church. So how silly to compare one church with another church. We all together are the bride of Jesus. As long as we are faithful to Christ and his word, Our brothers and sisters all throughout the world are the church that we are a part of. And I've said this before, you know, imagine if Jesus walked in the room and we just started uh, unloading on him about how annoying his wife is, right? Like, that's the church. That's the church. Listen, his wife may be annoying, but you don't just start bad-mouthing the wife of Jesus. That's not what you do. You humble yourself and you serve and you realize I'm I'm a part of that problem as well, yet we're precious to Jesus. And then he says, I will build my church. That word church is ekklesia in the original language. It's a Greek word and it means those who have been called out. Kaleo means to call. The church is those who have been called out. Church, you, we, have been uniquely called out of the world to gather around our head, Jesus. We've been called out of the world to be the church. Now listen, that means we're no mere organization. We're no mere nonprofit. Yes, there is, you know, logistical things that happen here. Yes, there's a budget and a building and those practical things, but that's not really who and what we are. We are the church of God. There's no CEOs here. We don't build the church on on worldly principles of wisdom because we've been called out of that. We are built on the word of God, on the gospel. We are not run by worldly principles of what, say, effectiveness looks like or leadership looks like or ministry looks like. We are run by Jesus' commands in his word. In fact, many times this will seem crazy why we do what we do. Paul said the the gospel's foolishness to the world. We don't get our wisdom on how to run the church from the world who thinks the foundational thing we're all about is foolish. It's just not where we go. We go to Jesus in his word. One pastor says this about building the church. Church planning and church establishing is a supernatural work. Or it is not the church that gets built but only a human organization. We do not want to be a human organization. We want to be far more, we want to be supernaturally built by, for, and around, and upon Jesus. And that means that that we, this, is a sacred, holy, supernatural thing. Paul also goes on to say, the church is God's temple. In the Old Testament, Under the old covenant, the temple was a single place where you had priests who would minister and people had to go to this one place. And yet we know when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, it says the veil in the temple was torn and now the spirit was poured out in Acts 2. And now we are the temple of God. You know, go to a place, we together are the new temple. And that temple is precious to God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 17, 16, 17. Do you not know that you, that's plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is why we care about holiness. This is why we care about right doctrine. 
This is why we care about what goes on in here. This is not just a you know, casual gathering of some people. Like This is a holy temple of God. And, and if anyone destroys God's temple, that's like a New Testament verse. God's like, yeah, you don't mess with my bride. God will destroy him. This is a holy, holy place. And I, and I want to maybe one more clarification. The church is not a group of people that exist for the sake of people. The temple was not a building that was for people. The church is for Jesus. It's a gathering for, to, and around the glory of God. That's why we use the word worship. When we come to worship, we come to worship God, not people. When we view worship as for me, we're worshiping ourselves. God is here to make me worship me. That is not what worship is, at least what true worship is. When we come to hear God's word with ourself as the great end in mind, we're coming to God for ourselves, not for him, not to hear from him, not for his glory. When we, we should never walk out of church and say, you know, what'd you get out of church today? We, we should say, what worship did you give to Jesus today? What did you give to Jesus? Offer your life as a spiritual sacrifice is pleasing to God, a sacrifice of praise. Even this right now as we sit under the word of God, it's worship. We're submitting to Jesus. We're trusting Jesus. We exist for the glory of God. And yes, we, here's, here's the truth. And, and if you know Jesus, you know this is true. You, are, you, you could not have more joy than when you're glorifying Jesus. You have not had more satisfaction, more purpose, more a sense of why you exist than when your eyes are fixed on Jesus and not yourself. So yes, people are blessed. They are fed, they are cared for. Yes, people are saved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but they do so as we gather around Jesus. We're here to worship Jesus. And so when Jesus said that, that promise, I will build my church, that, that, that comes in verse 18 of chapter 16. And, and that's, a, that's a kind of the climax of a conversation that comes before that with his disciples. And, and this is, that conversation is, is essential to understanding this, you know, what is, what, this promise of Jesus building his church. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses just 13 through 16, and, and here's the goal. We want to look at Jesus together. We want to look at the founder of our church, the church, King Jesus. We want to look together at the glory of Jesus. Right now, this is, this is worship. We're going to look at Jesus together. We're going to look at who he is, and he's revealed himself to be in his word. So let's do that together. Verse 13 says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Okay, first of all, I want us to notice the phrase, uh, the name Jesus gives himself, the Son of Man. Jesus used that phrase of himself more than any other name for himself. It's over 80 times in the Gospels. Jesus would say, you know, it's funny, he would talk of himself in third person because he was God and he was a big deal. And he would say, you know, hey, who do people say the son of man is? You know, the son of man came to save and seek the lost. The son of man, he would refer to himself as the son of man. Why did he use that phrase? He's using that phrase from a prophecy of the coming Messiah found in Daniel chapter seven. And Jesus is, when he says, when he refers to himself as the son of man, what he's saying is, when you read that prophecy, that's me. Now, I want us to read that prophecy together. I want us to behold Jesus together. Uh, look at this in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the vision of the Son of Man. This is what Jesus is referring to himself as. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's like a loaded phrase. When Jesus refers to himself, that's what he's referring to. And so he asked his disciples, hey, so who do people say that I am? Who do people say the son of man is? Now, Jesus isn't asking as maybe an insecure narcissist would wonder, you know, what are people saying about me? He's, he's engaging his disciples to, to think about, to realize that there are many opinions about him. Jesus wants us to think about the fact that there will always be many opinions about who Jesus is. And not everything that is said about him is necessarily true. That's what Jesus is getting his disciples to think about. So he says, who do people say that I am? And so in verse 14, they, say, they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they kind of list a handful. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was a great prophet. He was baptizing people and he was causing such a stir. And uh, he even called out the king at the time for taking his brother's wife and the king had him killed. And so some people thought, well, maybe John the Baptist, you know, reincarnated and it's Jesus. And so some say maybe that's who Jesus is. Others said Elijah. If you remember Elijah, he was maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest Old Testament prophets. He, you know, battled all the, the, the false prophets of Baal on the mountain, called down fire, he slaughtered them all. People are like, Jesus is kind of, you know, fiery sometimes. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's Elijah. Come again. There was the idea that Elijah would come before the Messiah would come. So they're wondering, maybe he's Elijah. Others said Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was a pretty emotional guy. He had to live through a really depressing season of the people of God through exile. And, you know, people, maybe some people looked at Jesus like, yeah, he's kind of emo. You know, I've seen him cry. You know, maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe that's, maybe that's who he is. And then some, some others say, you know, he's, he's, one, he's, probably, he's just got to be one of the prophets. I don't know who he is, but he he's, seems like a prophet. You know, he's, some, he's something. Now, it's worth pointing out that these are all honorable opinions of Jesus. It was not dishonorable. It was not, uh, you know, oh, he's some crazy guy. No, these were the greatest prophets, the greatest people of God. But notice that though people had honorable thoughts and opinions about Jesus, they were not the right thoughts. They were, in fact, thoughts that were far too low of who Jesus really was. One old commentator lived hundreds of years ago said this, note, it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not right ones. A high opinion of him and yet not high enough. Imagine if, you know, you're at lunch and Jesus, you know, came back for a minute and said, I want to have lunch with you guys. I want to ask you a question. What do people say? Who do people say I am? You know, 21st century California, America, what do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? You know, what would we say to him? Maybe we would say, you know, he's a good teacher. He's a really good teacher. He came to give us truth about how to make our life and our family and career better. He helps us think rightly about the world and how to think about people. Uh, you know, maybe others would say, yeah, you know what? He's just a really good example when I think of Jesus, you know, what would Jesus do? I, I, want, I think of him as a really good example, uh, how to care for people, how to care about justice or the poor or the marginalized. Maybe he confronts, you know, unjust systems and, and oppression. Jesus shows me, reminds me that I need to serve people, to be humble. Maybe he even shows me, you know, models for me how to have a good relationship with God. Some would say he's a good teacher. Some would say he's a good example. Maybe someone today would even be willing to say, do you know what? I think he's a prophet. I think he came from God. I think he was sent from God. And I think he really teaches us divine truth. I think he's like religiously significant. I think he has made a valid contribution to the wealth of spiritual knowledge today. You see, we're, we're not that different from people back then. 
And, you know, you, you'll be hard-pressed to go find somebody who's going to have a negative opinion of Jesus. Most people like Jesus. Most people aren't going to be like, do you know what? I hate Jesus. I don't like him. I don't like anything about him. I don't like what he taught. You, that's, that's pretty rare. People generally have good thoughts about Jesus. And so Jesus is engaging with his disciples. But then he asks a more significant question. Look at verse 15. This is the most significant question any human being will face. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Not just what do people say. Here, in fact, here Jesus asks you right now, who do you say I am? Now, we may not answer that question right now, but there will come a day when we will face Jesus. Every person will face Jesus. And the answer to that question will have eternal implications. That is the most important question you will ever face. Now, what does your church say? What does your pastor say? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, under that kind of pressure, Peter speaks up, right? Because that's what he does. And he speaks up in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He starts with, you are the Christ. Now, now that word Christ is a translation of a Hebrew word that means Messiah. He's saying, you are the Messiah. You're the Messiah. Now, this is significant because all the crowds thought he was, at best, a forerunner to the Messiah, a prophet, but not the Messiah. Peter says, no, you are the Messiah. And that word Messiah means means anointed one. And it's it's used in the Old Testament when, when kings and prophets were anointed with oil to officially serve their role. They were anointed. That, that word Messiah means anointed one. And if you remember, remember King David was just like a, a, a teenager. And Samuel, the prophet, comes to him and the, all the things, all his brothers. And finally, they get David. And, and then David is anointed as king. He's anointed as king. You, David, are the anointed one. Now, later in his life, that moment when he was sitting before God and God said, I'm going to build you a throne, God told David that there is one coming from your family who will be the truly anointed one who will sit on your throne forever and ever. And he will rule and reign and conquer all of the enemies of Israel. And so the Jews had this great hope that a Messiah, an anointed one, would come in the line of David who would rule and reign forever. And Peter is saying, though others do not think you are the Messiah, I do. You are the Messiah. You are the King of Kings. You are the Christ. And then he says, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. He's, he says, you're the Son of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the nation, people of Israel, were often referred to as the Son of God. And, and what Jesus did in his ministry, you may not know this, maybe you, you kind of know it, Jesus' life mirrors the life of Israel. And so his, all these prophecies that were true of the people of Israel were, were more true in the life of Jesus. There's this prophecy that says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And you remember, what's that a picture of? That's a picture of the Exodus. And God came and he saved his son, Israel, and he delivered them out of Egypt. And if you know, when Jesus was just a baby, King Herod heard about him, this new coming king, and he was going to kill and did kill every male child under the age of two. That would be my son included under the age of two. And an angel told Joseph, hey, leave, go to Egypt. And so they flee to Egypt. And then when they return out of Egypt, Jesus is fulfilling what it is to be the son of God in a perfect, more true way. And if you remember Israel, after they came out of Egypt, where did they go through? Who did they, what did they pass through? The Red Sea. And if you remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
Matthew chapter three, he's standing in the water, in the water, and when this baptism is happening, the heavens opened up, and the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you remember, after the water, they went into the wilderness, and they were tempted, and they failed, and an entire generation missed out on the promises of God. And if you remember, right after his baptism, where did Jesus go? He was led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan himself. And do you know what Satan said to him? If you are the son of God, and then he would tempt him. If you are really the son of God, and he would tempt him. If you are really the son of God, and every time Jesus resists, because he's the true son of God, because he has done what every other child of God has not done. He has perfectly obeyed every commandment in the Bible. He has perfectly fulfilled all that is required in the law. He was righteous. He was the true son of God with whom God is well pleased. And Peter is recognizing you are the the true son of God. And then notice even this word, the son of the living God. We're going to get more into the context here in a few weeks of what's going on at Caesarea Philippi and why this is significant, this conversation happened here. But, but I'll just say this. Where they were standing in the area, they were great caves. And it was a, an area of pagan idol worship. And there were carvings of rock of all these different gods all around them. And what Peter is saying is these gods are dead gods. They're etched in stone by human hands. These gods were made by humans. But you are the son of the living God, the true God, the only God. And it's important because because he's not just a savior or a prophet. He is the son of God. This confronts every other religion in human history. You know, Mormons are willing to believe a lot of good things about Jesus, but not that he is truly the son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses are willing to give Jesus a lot of credit, but he's not the son of God. He is a God. Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet, a good man from God, but they will not admit that God has a son. They They can't admit that. Hindus believe Jesus was another prophet, but he is not the exclusive way, truth, and the life to God. The secular world we believe in believes Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, an inspiring example, but they're not willing to admit he is the son of the living God. And if you see Jesus for who he truly is, the son of the living God, it changes everything about your life. You can't just believe, oh yeah, you know, I like him. Like, like no, he's God. Like, like you worship him or you don't. You obey him or you don't. When you see Jesus for who he truly is, like there's a, there's a real line in the sand. There's no middle ground when you see Jesus for who he really is. And so let me just declare right now to you, church, Jesus is the son of the living God. Do you, who do you say he is? Are you willing to agree and say with Peter, yes, Jesus is the son of God. Whatever he says, goes. He is my God. Are you willing to say that about Jesus? There's really a line in the sand when it comes to the identity of Jesus. And to not cross that line and say he's the son of God is to have your answer. To be uncertain is to have your answer. Jesus is the savior, the son of the living God. Now, I lied. I forgot. I, this, we're also doing verse 17. Classic preacher move. Um, now, now, you, now, people can believe these truths in their heads. They can be like, yeah, okay, I believe that. Uh, and I want to ask you, is the height of knowing Jesus, you know, signing your, your name on a, on a doctrinal statement? No, it's not. Which is why the next verse is so critical. Because, because the truth about Jesus is not just to be intellectually ascended to. It has to be revealed supernaturally to your entire being. Look at verse 17. 
Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You cannot simply come to know Jesus for who he truly is unless God the Father reveals it to you. You cannot come to know Jesus and who he truly is unless God the Father reveals it to you. Christianity is a supernatural thing. And to see Jesus for who he truly is is a miraculous thing. One pastor said this, yet men make no discovery of the Lord's true character by their own guesswork. Only those to whom he reveals himself will ever know him. Which is why Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't just figure this out on your own, Peter. The world around Peter had their own opinions about Jesus. And Peter had been seeing Jesus and he's watching his miracles and he's seeing his teaching. Yet there was a moment when the father revealed the true identity of Jesus to him. Peter didn't realize this with his own flesh and blood his own natural faculties, Jesus said it was revealed to him by his Father in heaven. One of the most astounding and even uncomfortable truths about following Jesus is this. You have to be born again. You can't just agree. You can't just, you you know, we live in a culture that has uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer criticized it as easy believism. I believe in Jesus. Yes, yeah, of course. Jesus says, you have to be born again. You can't just agree. You can't just use your own flesh and blood and reasoning and then say, yeah, I'm, I'm down with Jesus. This is an uncomfortable truth because this, this is a miracle. To enter the kingdom of God, you have to come through the narrow gate, which is the identity of Jesus as you are born again. Which, which means that true Christianity is no familial thing. You could be born into a Christian household. That's awesome. You, you have many blessings that someone who hasn't will not have. But that is not enough. You have to be born again. True Christianity is not just a cultural thing. You know, yeah, you like America, you know, we're like generally Christian. Or, or maybe you lived in like a, a little bubble and it was a Christian culture. And so, yeah, you agree I'm a Christian. Like, no, you have to be born again. Christianity is not merely an intellectual thing. You cannot just sit there with a a book of apologetics and then be like, all right, I agree. You can't just come into a worship service and emotionally feel good. You have to be born again. As we all know, we've all felt good at concerts that were not about Jesus. That's like a thing, you know, that's like an emotional phenomenon. It's not bad, but it's not salvation. You have to be born again. Now, what is it to be born again? What does it mean for the Father to reveal the truth about Jesus? Well, a few things. I I want us to see, first of all, not only Jesus says flesh and blood can't reveal it. It, Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in case you're like, is this kid making this stuff up? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we need to be born again. So what's the solution? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's what happens. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what happened to Peter. God, who, who said, as he did in Genesis chapter 1, remember, God just, how did God create? He spoke and it happens. That's how God does things. He speaks and it happens. The God who did that in creation says to our own hearts, if you are a Christian, this is what he did. He spoke light, the light of the knowledge, which means you have to like know in your brain something about Jesus. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a culture. It's not just you were born into a Christian family. You have to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's this amazing picture when we see God make someone born again of the whole Trinity. 
you have God the Father. That's what Jesus said. The Father revealed this to you. You have God the Father. And what does he do? He speaks his word. And now who is the word of God? We know it from John chapter one. Jesus. God the Father speaks his word. He sends out his word. And then the spirit of God, who is the breath of God, John chapter three, when he's explaining you must be born again, says the wind, the spirit blows where he wills. But when he comes, he brings life. You have to be born again through the spirit. And so you have God the Father speaking. That's the word. And the speaking also has the, you can't speak without breath. And so the spirit is so intimately there. When you hear about the truth about Jesus, you are born again. That's how the new birth happens. God the Father speaks the word of God, who is ultimately about Jesus and the spirit of God uses all of that and you are born again. Now, I know it sounds mystical, but it's not. It's explainable, but it, but it is supernatural, okay? It's not mystical. It's God speaks his word about Jesus. The spirit of God makes you alive. It's simple actually, but it's supernatural. God has to work the miracle of salvation. You must be born again. The truth about Jesus has to be revealed to our hearts. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so Peter had spent time with the living word, Jesus. And God the Father used that time and information of who Jesus was and the Spirit used that to open Peter's heart to see Jesus for who he truly was. And it's the same thing that has to happen today. God the Father sends his word, his son, and when that word of his son, the gospel, is shared and spoken, the Spirit comes and breathes life and people are born again. This is why, as, as it was for Peter, we are a people of the book. We are about divine revelation. We have, this has to be revealed to us. God has to speak and reveal truth to us, which means we don't have the authority to decide for ourselves what Jesus is like and what Jesus would and wouldn't do. The right answer is, what has God revealed about himself? We can't, we, we can't say, I, you know, I, the God I know wouldn't do this, or God doesn't do that. We have no authority to say that. The only way to know the truth about God is through his revealed word, which is ultimately about Jesus. Now, to wrap all this up, why all this, like, theology and truth about Jesus? Because, church, nothing matters more to our church and the church. Nothing matters more to the survival of the church than to know the person of Jesus. And, and we cannot just bring our own opinions about him and our own thoughts and ideas. We must know who he is as he has revealed himself in and through his word. And church, nothing is more essential to your own personal walk with God than, than to know the person of Jesus. And the thing that will kill your spiritual life is being cut off from the true person of Jesus. And the thing that will kill any church is when it is cut off from the true person of Jesus. And so it is our end as the church to pursue the knowledge of Jesus to pursue him, to know him and his word. Our great aim is to see and glorify the son of God, the son of the living God, who is the Messiah, who left heaven, who lived a perfect life, who went to the cross, who took sin upon his shoulders, received all the wrath of God, that if any of us would believe in that good news, we would be born again that we would be saved and that we would gather around the glory of Jesus. And so I, I want us to close with these words of Paul. And this is our prayer for our church, that this would be the heartbeat of your life and our church together. Here it is, Philippians chapter three, verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus 
We want to gain you, Christ. We want to know you and worship you and see you. We want to lose everything. We're willing to lose our life because you are a treasure, Jesus, that is worth more than anything else this world has to offer. You are eternally significant and eternally satisfying and eternally wonderful. And so this morning, we didn't just come to play church. We came together around you, our head, to worship you, to behold you, to give our lives to you. And we believe, Jesus, that as we come to you, that the fruit that we so long for in our life will come. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are fruits of the Spirit as we abide in Jesus. Lord, if any of us have been running after those things apart from you, our head, first of all, I know, Lord, that it would be exhausting that our flesh and blood is not enough, that we need We need Christ. We need new life in Christ. We need the Spirit of God fueling us. So Lord, if any of us are just tired, would we return to Christ this morning? We see Jesus for who he is, as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And would Jesus, you become that for us? Who do you say that I am, Lord? Would would every person in this room come to you, Christ? Lord, if any of us um, have had just high opinions of you, yet you are not our Lord, Lord, would you use your word and your spirit and bring new life this morning? Would you bring new life? Would people be born again? Would they experience the freedom to have our sin taken away by the Son of God? the new life, the very breath of God in us, and the joy it is to walk with you, Jesus. Would you do that this morning in your church? You are building your church. You're still building. It's not done yet. You haven't come. So would you save more, Lord? And then, Jesus, I also pray that that those of us who know you would leave this place with the gospel on our lips, knowing that, Jesus, you are still going to build your church, and there are more people to be saved, and that you're not done revealing yourself, your son, to people. Give us confidence, Lord, that that the Father is still able to reveal Jesus to people. That's not flesh and blood. It's not cleverness. It's not even our good reasons, but it's the Father who is in heaven. So we put our trust in you, Lord. You will build your church. You are building your church. And now, Lord, together, would we just spend this next time singing, worshiping you, Jesus, the Son of God, the living God, our Messiah. We sing to you, Lord. We fix our gaze upon you. You are worthy.